Hey, welcome to the Spiritual Underground Podcast. This is Dan coming to you from my wood shop in the backyard of DTM Enterprises. Hey, uh, just a little commercial on the uh, DTMWW.net. Go out there and see the uh, things I'm making. I also got some handyman stuff going on here locally. So if you're in the Louisville metro area, 502-292-7444. And uh, we can hook you up on... uh, Lots of handyman type of stuff, man. You got a honey-do list? Holler at me. Got a honey-do list and don't have no honey to do it? Uh, I'm your guy. Been having a pretty good... Uh, been having a blast doing that. Actually, uh, walking away with uh, smiles on people's faces, man. Their stuff is fixed. The uh, Go Out 12-Step Spiritual Recovery is a book by James Christopher Cohn at Amazon. Please go out there and take a look at that, man. It's the 12 Steps for Everybody. It's a master's level course of the 12 steps, uh, optimized way of doing that work. Another uh, feather in your cap and, a, and another way to grow and continue to, uh, to uh, increase the quality of your life in whatever you happen to be recovering from. Um, you know, I'm just going to sit around and talk about some things today. Uh, there's a couple things on my heart, uh, a couple things been going on, and uh, spend some time... Uh, Talking to y'all. So a week from today, I'll turn 50 years old. That's a pretty decent milestone. I'd say I'd never never considered making it, but I I didn't consider not making it. It just seems odd that, man, boom, there you are. But I look around at my other 50-year-old friends, and they don't look old anymore. But, man, I remember a long time ago looking forward, 50 looked like a long, looked like an old person. Uh, I feel pretty good today. Don't feel uh, don't feel fifty at any level, man. Excuse me. Um, what else is going on? Oh, I'll tell you along those lines. So to Monday morning we take off and go to Vermont for five days. I uh, got some cool stuff to going on there. Robin's taking me uh, for a little trip on my fiftieth birthday. Uh, pampered trip. That's going to be a blast. Looking really forward to that. And then coming home on Saturday, which will actually or coming home Friday and then Saturday on my actual birthday. Uh, with a half a dozen of my best friends uh, going out to eat and going to see Buddy Guy and Kenny Wayne Shepherd uh, at Outdoor Theater here in Louisville uh, Amphitheater. So that's going to be cool. Uh, heck of a next few days going on. I got a couple of brothers coming over tomorrow too to do podcasts. Uh, Mark and Marshall, our actual sponsor and sponsee, Marshall just crossed over uh, one year of sobriety like a week ago, and uh, so I like to get that fresh recovery. That is a uh, Get that in here on the microphone, you know, and Mark has been sponsoring him and Marshall's just on fire. So we're going to actually, they're both coming up from uh, about an hour away and we're going to, uh, man, I cannot get comfortable in the chair I'm in. We are going to uh, do a double header, have uh, each of them tell their stories and it, uh, cause it's going to be, going to be a cool Sunday also. So. Uh, and hell, last night, to Brandon and I, y'all seen his story on here, Juice Man, he came down to the cabin, him and I drove down to the cabin Friday night, and uh, he dropped his fist step. I hate that. I said drop it. I don't like dropping. I don't like the word drop it when it's talking to a step. Uh, I don't know why. It's personal pet peeve. No big deal. But uh, so we did that. He come down, cooked up some, built a fire, cooked up some steaks and some asparagus and some mushrooms, had a big meal uh freaking awesome and sit down and uh and, and got free of some stuff so that is cool and brandon's been sober for quite some time and 
16 years, I believe. And so his uh, fifth step's a little different than what maybe a person that's coming down the pike that's new and first time through the steps. There's uh, quite a bit of a difference in the two. Uh, it's kind of a new word for me and a, and a big honor for me, too, to have uh, him ask me to take him through the steps. And, uh, you know, here I am, what, four years and seven and a half months or something. And uh, he's 16. So that's what we do in our lineage. You know, we teach, we, we, we learn from one another. We don't have any barrier, uh, any uh any barriers to or any egos attached or we try not to uh on asking people to sponsor you or asking people to take you through the steps got more or less time than you so uh why that what the what the hell's that matter it's like a age what's age mean you know they're a little younger than me got somebody texting me Actually, it's Robin. Should probably not uh, reply. Should probably put that down. Uh, <laughs> so we lost a guy this week too, man. I'll swing around and do different things. Uh, one of our friends lost his brother, true brother, and uh, blood brother, and to this disease and. Um, they laid him to rest today and it's just a common occurrence man i said in a little youtube video the other day and man I, I don't mean this to be disrespectful at all because what i want is people to freaking recover and survive and not go off and uh end up dead over this stuff um he just couldn't come in and be one of us and you see that happen quite often. And uh, I think that's part of the disease. It's uh, one of the things that keeps us separate. It's the thing we talk about being terminally unique, you know, that I'm not like you guys. Uh, I shared this other day, or, you know, and I don't know if this makes any sense or not, but it's like if you're on the Cubs baseball team and you're going to come sit in the dugout and you want to play with them, but you're going to wear a Phillies uniform, you know, they're not going to be real happy about you being on the team. You know, you're not really part of the team. You're set, You're setting yourself uh, as a separate entity you're putting yourself over to the side and i know we all are unique and unique people that kind of thing but uh this recovery thing doesn't tend to seem to work that way if you want to stand out on a perimeter on the outside looking in uh you don't recover and that's my that, that's my experience that's what i've been seeing and they die so uh then I get a phone call today from a guy out of the blue. He friended me on Facebook, and then he calls me today. Uh, well, he texted me and said he's in a bad spot, and I said, do we need to talk? And he said, yeah, so uh, he sent me his phone number, and I called him, you know, and that story come up, and he just flat out told me he's not ready to stop drinking. And the fact of the matter is I can't really help you because I'm not going to sit. I just don't. I don't do – I don't go chasing you down. I don't go try to wrestle you into a rehab joint. Uh, if you called me and wanted to ride, I probably would, but I'm not going to like come and uh, try to get you to do that. And and I was glad that he told me he was honest with me about uh, that he did not want to quit. And I was honest about to him about, you know, I don't really uh, spend a lot of time with people who are not in the solution. So when he is in the solution and the way I look at that is, is that I think you prop people up. It's kind of an innate it's an enabling thing 
where you prop somebody up where if I get out, they can suck the serenity out of me in a couple different ways. It gets bled over into them because they'll talk to me and get some of my juice. I end up discharging some juice. They, they walk away feeling better. I walk away feeling worse. And, uh, and if I would just get out of the way and let them fall over and, and maybe give them a chance to hit a bottom, that's the same thing I was talking about, about families have that opportunity to give people, uh, uh, consequences and, uh, they won't. And so in these ways, when somebody calls me and asks for help, if they're not wanting help, really, uh, I'm backing off, I'm backing away and, and I'm not going to be the one that props them up and holds them, uh, upright until, you know, they actually, uh, get more ready or get ready. And, you know, man, I told him, I love him. I, I if he's sober, he can call me. Uh, I'll talk to him. Uh, I don't talk to drunks. I'm not going to spend any time on the telephone with somebody that's, uh, drunk unless they're like you know hitting that bottom and they're ready to change we're not going to have her sit around and have a drunk conversation i'm not doing that anyway i told him the story of uh our friend who died and uh and this guy started crying so i know that i hit him uh at a level that that touched him uh, my sponsors told me that tears are the gold standard for all this work so when uh he did he did that and we broke it off and said goodbye told him to call me and uh help him how i could it's interesting how those things come around you know and he he had met me at a meeting i don't really i mean i barely remember him i looked him up on facebook i saw his picture so i i barely i do remember him i do really good with names and faces and stuff but uh, i didn't really you know i didn't i barely met him so uh that's that Got some woodworking projects going, taking a little break on the handyman thing so I can take a, uh, take this vacation. Excited about that. Uh, what else is going on? Yeah, I started thinking about some things that, uh, as people tell their stories and I get a chance to speak and we had, uh, tss army that night we were talking about safe and tight containers and frank had brought those brought that language to me and and uh and it means a lot to me today about that being having a place safe place to talk and and i get myself in some positions where i, I can't uh uh i don't feel safe and one of the reasons is because the container is not tight i'm not sure that what i say won't go other places and uh you know some things happen uh last week before the tssr meeting and there were some people sitting in the meeting and uh they were close to other people and that i know and part of the uh, they were close to the people that were in my head and what i would be sharing about and i didn't feel safe sharing that night and that's okay and that's a good that's actually another blessing is that i knew to keep my mouth shut uh Fact of the matter is, is I probably wasn't exactly right because of uh, but, but but I pause when I'm doubtful too, not just when I'm agitated. So I I didn't share and um, didn't let that stuff out because the container didn't seem safe and it didn't seem tight. And that's something that uh, most of my recovery circles give me, and that's like what we do with that fist step last night. You know, that is a safe and tight container. We're down there at my cabin. Nobody's overhearing us for sure. We're certainly in a safe atmosphere. And we're not, uh, and I, I give my guy ironclad guarantee that I am not going to let out what he tells me in someplace else. So, uh, 
I'm going to pause this thing for just a second because I'm looking at the audio and something doesn't seem right. Hang on a second. All right, I'm back. Uh, I didn't do something I normally do, and I don't know that it uh, had any negative effect whatsoever. It didn't seem to, uh, but it had me scared. I thought, man, I've done some time here of uh, podcast recording, and, and, and it may not have been uh, recorded. So it's like safe and tight containers an important thing, and we do it in like our little group. We got this group me, and we uh, in there. It's a thing where that along with that, along the same lines, uh, and for, to further that statement, the safe and t- the the a safe and sharing deeply with one another requires a safe and tight container that works best when all participants uh, uh, participate equally and consistently. So if people are not anteing up their stuff, and that's kind of the thing about a fist step last night, we exchange fist steps. We don't, a guy doesn't, that's why I don't like that dropped my fist step. I'm exchanging a fist step with a guy. He's telling me some things about his life, some stuff that he's uh, sensitive things. And, and, you know, sometimes take it to the grave kind of stuff that you're uh, allowing somebody else in and telling. And I do the same thing and share back to my stuff too. So then we end up with this, like that that exchange it happens where we both participate we both anteed up we both put some uh we both have some skin in the game and that's the way that stuff works best so uh we have some people in our group and stuff that do not um participate and it gets to be a little sticky you know and you end up in a position where you're like well man uh and so i i contact them and and get with them on that and it just uh, doesn't work for me. If you're not, you know, you don't get to just, this isn't Facebook where you just get to lurk and read the news or uh, this is a, this is a participatory uh, endeavor, these uh, groups that I'm in. I feel the same thing about home groups and, and things like that too. You know, if you're just, I don't know, it's that, that, that thing where I say, you know, thank you for allowing me to participate in my recovery. I must participate in my recovery. I have to take an active role in that. And one of those things is is uh, is, is anteing up and being part of the group and putting on the damn Cubs uniform and sitting on it, you know, and saying, I am one too. Whatever you guys are, I am one too. I'm not standing out separate from y'all. And I'm going to put my stuff on the table and empty out my pockets and show you what I have. And I expect you to do the same. Uh, and I know that's not, you know, that ain't for everybody, but that's for me and that's for my tribe. That's what we do. We get our shit out on the table and share it um so enough of that uh i got to thinking about some things in in some different places that uh i keep on seeing people with ankle bracelets on i know a bunch of people that have ankle bracelets on right now uh and i wore one for nine months it was supposed to be a year uh, but i ended up getting off of it in nine months and and I actually got off of it and uh they took it off of me i think it was if i'm remembering the date right november the 4th of uh 2015 and i had my car packed and ready to go deer hunting and had gotten permission from uh angel janine down at the community corrections office to uh do that and off i went for uh, a couple weeks down to the cabin and man if you had you're on home incarceration for nine months and get broke free like that uh there's a level of freedom in that that's uh beyond uh well, it's beyond what most people, I guess it's kind of like getting out of jail, you know, or getting out of a uh, prison. 
but it was fantastic and that's something i've been doing every year now is about that time is going and taking my little sabbatical and going down to the cabin but i got to thinking about uh i could almost do a whole talk on just my uh, home incarceration period uh the things that happened you know uh I didn't know when I went to court that day. When I, you know, one of the things they do is they take you back into the back of the room and and you sign the pa- you read the papers and sign them and everything, and you come back out to the front of the courtroom, and uh, do it officially on record. You know where the judge asks you all the questions and you answer them out loud, and the court reporters jot, you know taking all the um, whatever they do doing the, doing what they do. And I thought that that was going to be. Uh, like they'd slam a gavel and come out there and clamp a bracelet around my ankle, but they didn't. And I was told to like report at community corrections in like a week or whatever it was. It was, it was a little bit down the road. And, uh, so yeah, so then I got to thinking about that, you know, and that's, that's, I'm almost better if you don't let me have time to think. Uh, but I did. And I got some information, you know, got some, uh, talk to my sponsor about it, about what should I do? One of the things he had me do was uh, I took a, made a list of everything I was doing. I was going to a meeting every day. Some uh, On Tuesdays, I was going to two. And uh, so I made a list of all those locations, where they were at. Uh, I had a number of places where I was taking my kids to and from, being school and dance and scouts, and things like that. And uh, so when I made this schedule and wrote it down and looked at it, I thought... Yeah, this is not going to fly. Uh, when I go down there, uh, they are not going to uh, sign off on this. And I just felt ridiculous doing it. But I did. And, uh, man, when I went down there, showed up. Uh, hell, that first day I went in, I felt like a 12-year-old little boy, man. I was walking in there. I felt like I was, you know, uh, four foot two inches tall. Uh, I was scared to death of what 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 the you know what we were going to do down there um when i got there obviously they uh went through all these formalities man they took pictures of me fingerprints uh urine uh, you know a baseline urinalysis which was clean and uh because i had been been sober for a little bit and uh sat down waiting for the correction officer that i was assigned to to uh uh take care of me so he handed me a a uh, sheet of paper and and had me you know to schedule uh write out my schedule you know the things i was asking permission to do you know what what i did it had it had room for three things on it i think if i remember right and uh, i kind of looked up and was like yeah that's not gonna work uh so i didn't you know i didn't want to do it but my sponsor coached me so i got my piece of paper out and i said well thing is uh, i'm going to a lot of recovery meetings and i, I work and my son daughter have uh activities so i handed him the piece of paper and he uh he looked down his reading glasses you know down his nose at that at that piece of paper and up at me and down at the paper and up at me and um he uh reached over and said he, he put a finger up in there and said give me just a minute i'm gonna need to call janine and uh he reached over and he grabbed the phone he said janine mr reed is here and uh we need to speak with you i had no idea who janine was so we sat quietly he hung up the phone and he sat there and i sat there and we just sat quietly and uh, i could hear the footsteps come around the corner and boom 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 around the corner and there walks around uh comes around the corner is uh i'll just say it 
attractive, petite, blonde lady with fantastic energy come around the corner and introduced herself as Janine. And I started stumbling around and telling her what was going on, and Jim did too. And she looked at my paper and she gave, gave me a co- asked me a number of questions. And uh, after getting satisfied that uh, all was well, she uh, told Jim to let me do all that stuff. And that was the very first time that, uh, you know, there's a sign down there that said something about reducing recidivism. I think that's what they call it, recidivism something, which means uh, go back and get in trouble again. And I really didn't buy that when I was down there. That's not been, you know, I didn't think that's what the court system or the correction system actually did. I thought they were there to punish you, not to help you get better. But uh, as time went by, I found out that actually they were down there to help me get better. So uh, I tried to squeeze in all my stuff. At that piece of paper that, that Jim had given me was a was like a, a carbon copy paper. So when you wrote on it, you know, it, it transferred to the pieces underneath of it. And I tried to squeeze all my stuff on there. And I did the best I could, and uh, and and after a minute, you know, I, I, and I saw we got that done and settled it. And um, after a few weeks, you know, I realized, you know, so I started to actually took and I took that piece of paper, that form, and I made my own on Excel, and uh, and filled it out. And plus, that way, I could like really just tune it up. It was the same week to week to week to week, so uh, I could just change the dates and stuff and do it. And I took it down there and asked them if that would suffice, and they looked at it and they were totally cool with it. I mean, it looked like their form. Uh, it was neat, typed up, uh, so it wasn't handwritten. You know, all the addresses, all the information was on it. And uh, it actually turned out that later on they asked me for a copy of it because they wondered if maybe other, uh, uh, I was saying this in air quotes because this is what they called it, other clients. I uh, felt more like a like a inmate than a client would use that schedule. Now, I don't know if they ever did. But uh, so week after week, I would start doing that. Another thing I did, you know, you had to, uh bring in you had to get paper signed i had to get meeting sheets signed they gave me a meeting sheet format so every time i went to a meeting a 12-step meeting uh i'd fill that out and get it signed um you had to bring them back in every friday or that was my day come back every every friday turn in a new schedule and turn in all your um verifications for the past week so like when i took dustin to scouts I would have to get the scoutmaster to sign that I was there. And when I went to dance, I'd have to get the the lady at the dance place to sign that I had actually been there. And anything else I did, I had an opportunity to go to the grocery store once a week. And I had turned in my receipt and, you know, the time window needed to be when I said I was going to be at the grocery store. Um, I was able to go to mom and dad's, but I don't remember having to have any verification for that. I was going to church, so I turned in a copy of the church bulletin, and I also turned in my timesheets and my paycheck stubs because they said, you know, they didn't need to not let work know about it as long as work was still paying me, and that, then they would assume I was there. Uh, now, my ankle bracelet was not a GPS or cell kind of one. It was one where they actually like a radio frequency, so they had to come find me uh, to see if I was actually someplace. So they had some kind of device, and they could drive by and see if my ankle bracelet was in that building or if I was in the places I said I was going to be. And there was a couple times when I was in a basement when somebody would call me, the the guy who was out doing the uh, surveillance would call me and ask me, you know, where you at? And I'd tell him. And because uh, they couldn't pick me up in a basement or in the middle of a big building like at work. 
Uh, but they didn't worry about it too much. One of the things I was always worried about is I was worried I'd screw that up by accident. Not on, you know, I knew I wasn't going to make a mistake on purpose. I just wasn't going to risk that and uh, end up facing those consequences of all that prison time. Because that's what I thought. I thought that if I screwed that up, I was going to prison. It turned out, that, and I'll tell that story in a minute, it turned out that wasn't necessarily true. Uh, it's actually a great thing for me that I, that I didn't know that. Uh, along with, so that ankle bracelet had that radio frequency thing. They'd run around and find me. And, uh, and I don't know how much they did that, but they did a little. Uh, I do remember uh, right off the bat, uh, so I had also had a breathalyzer in my house that would ring. It had a, a tone that went off on it. And it would uh, call for me, and I'd have to run up and, and blow in it. Um, when I first came home like from work, when I first came through the door, it would know because it would pick up and sense my ankle bracelet, and it would call for me. Uh, and it would get me first thing in the morning, and it would get me last thing in the night. And uh, I've shared before, you know, the time, one time it uh, actually got me on a Sunday. It, it called for me seven times that was the record i could remember when how many times in one day it, it actually asked me to come up and blow in it seven times it also tracked me so it knew what time i was coming and leaving the house so when it lost contact with my ankle bracelet you know it logged that when i came back home it logged that uh, so right off the bat when I first had it, see, the, my only landline came in upstairs in my house. So that's what they hooked it to. Well, I wasn't going to be able to hear that thing all over the house. I just wasn't, I didn't think I'd be able to. So I, I had somebody get me a baby monitor. And I put a baby monitor up there by it. And I kept the other hand, like the handheld part of the baby monitor near me. Or on my belt even. Uh, so that I would hear it. If I was sitting down in the basement or wherever I was sitting, I'd have it sitting there on the table so that I could hear it go off. And I'd run up and, and get the, and blow into it. And when I come home from work, I didn't really have time to, when I come in the house, I didn't have time to, uh, to like get my bags or get my stuff or unload the car. Or even when I come home from the grocery store to unload the car, I'd have to, you know, basically when it heard me, cause it would probably catch me. Likewise, I was approaching the house and was still in the street and it would alarm it. And then, so I had very little time to get in the house and get, you know, blow in it so that it's, I could, you know, satisfy, satisfy it and go on to doing what I was doing. And uh, I was down in the basement running a power saw or something, and uh, and I didn't hear it going off, but I did hear the very last tone. Now, the very last tone is uh, a little different than the rest of them. And he, uh, um, I go upstairs, and, and I missed it. And I'm sitting there staring at that breathalyzer man, and it's the very first time. And, uh, and heck, man, I went out and stood by the front door, watching out the front door, because I thought sure that they were going to be uh, coming after me in just a minute. And they didn't. And uh, I went to my next verification appointment to take my stuff in there. And I asked him about it. And uh, he saw it and looked at it. And yeah, and he just kind of shook his head. And he said, yeah, man, if there's any problem, we will call you. And I thought, okay. So, hmm. Uh, it's interesting. I'm not getting in trouble for not blowing in that machine. Uh, but I wasn't going to let that happen. You know, That's not going to happen on purpose. So that thing would call for me. I'd blow on it. My kids and other people around, we call it the bat phone. Uh, it was highly annoying, but it would take your picture. It had flashes around it. Uh, another thing it would do, like it tended to get me in my morning meditation almost every single morning. It actually taught me a lot about like being interrupted during your meditation. 
in the beginning when it would go off, I would like to think, you know, well, that screwed that up. Uh, no sense in trying to continue to meditate. But there's also something in me that didn't want to accept that. So I learned to go back downstairs and sit down and uh, after blowing in the machine, come back down, chill out and get back in and finish my meditation. So, you know, and part of that is, heck, part of the like fundamental thing of meditation is to be uh, cool when all those around you are not, right? When, when chaos is around you, um, meditation practice helps you maintain some serenity. Um, so, it taught me that. Um, think about what else happened. There was a whole bunch of stuff, you know. There was, there was a day that... Uh, on Fridays, I would leave the house and go take my kids to Silver Creek to, you know, it's about 20 minute, 20, 30 minute away to school and then head down to uh, community corrections to turn in my stuff and, and get my weekly check in. And I walked one day and the guy, uh, my main corrections guy, he uh, asked me what time it was on my watch and I told him and he said, good, good, good. So he said, here, look here. And he showed me, and he said, you left the house early this morning. Well, I instantly, my blood pressure goes up, and I'm panicked because I think I'm in trouble. And I look over there, and I see he's pointing at it on the screen that I had left um, I had left the house. And I, I signed out, you know, signed my thing, said I'd leave the house at 7.30. And, um, and I'd left the house 90 seconds early. So it said something like uh, 7.28.32. And... Uh, I thought he might be going to crack a smile in a minute and, and, and let me know he was joking, but he did not. He, uh, he was serious, best I could tell. So he jerked or not my tail for leaving the house 90 seconds early that day, and if I would watch my watch that I had on, that I would be in sync with the computer, and I would know whether if I was leaving earlier or, you know, that I would be on time. A number of different times those things happen, and I kind of understand that, man, because you give us you give us a, a long leash, and uh, and we'll take every inch of it, right? There was another time when uh, Dustin had uh, was going to scout scout camp was coming up, and I only had that one grocery store trip a week, and I could schedule some other things if I wanted to go clothes shopping or if I need to do something I need to schedule, but I didn't, and it got time, and Dustin needed some socks, so. Rather than go to Kroger's and then run and get some socks or do something else about that, I did my grocery store trip at Myers. Um, because Kroger's does not have socks, or at least the one down the street from me does not, and Myers has groceries and socks. And sometimes I would put on my schedule that I was going to Myers instead of Kroger's. Uh, this week, though, I had said I was going to Kroger's. I went to Myers and I got the socks and I come home. Well, the next week I went to do my verifications and. Uh, my normal people weren't there, and uh, one of the uh, more upper-ranking persons at the community corrections was doing the doing the check-ins, and uh, the very first thing she did, man, she was so normally they didn't like look at my stuff; they just kind of fingered through it and moved on. Uh, she started actually doing a true verification, and the first thing she stepped on was the uh, my my schedule said I was going to be at Kroger's, and I had a Myers receipt. So uh, she read me the riot act. Uh, once again, I thought I was in a ton of trouble. Uh, she called in somebody else because she was not going to do a detailed uh, uh, analysis of my verifications versus my schedule. And uh, she got him to do it. And he kind of, you know, he, he kind of snickered under his breath a little bit about 
uh, yeah, um, that's just her, and, uh, you know, you can't be doing this, dude, and we, it got, it ended up getting, uh, padded out, and it wasn't any big deal, but it certainly had me freaked out for a minute, and I knew I shouldn't have done it. That was the only time that I remember actually pushing the limit where, beyond where I knew, you know, I was like, yeah, but, I don't know, you know, that's just, uh, I guess in my nature at some level. Uh, it's surprising that I didn't do it more than that. I remember one time I was in church, and uh, this was early on, too. I was in church, and uh, my phone rang, and I saw that it was community corrections, and I was in the middle, man, I mean, right in the middle. And there was probably a dozen people down each aisle from me, and I couldn't, like, just, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. And it was like this church has traditional, I think they call it, services where that's basically a rock band is playing up on stage in the beginning and uh i answered the phone man and i told him i was like he goes where are you at i said i'm in church and i said i know it doesn't sound like church it sounds like i'm in a concert and i told him and he's actually was familiar with it so he he said well when you get out call me back and what i'd done he called i uh, bumped that that breathalyzer also had like a tilt in it like a like a pinball machine used to have a tilt indicator so if you bump that damn thing man it set off a tamper deal so i started having to learn to not so that's what had happened that morning is i bumped the table and he was calling about the tamper alert and uh so i had to be really careful not to bump into that thing man it would it had that flash in it and um would take your picture and you know you had to blow in it and probably my cheeks you know you look like a was it Dizzy Gillespie or Louis Armstrong or somebody who blew the saxophone with their cheeks all out? Uh, you had to blow in that sucker hard, just like you do. And in case y'all don't know, those ones you had to do out on the road, man. Blow hard, harder, harder, harder. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, so I started having those pictures. I went through a period of time where I was putting on, I had a bunch of hats up there. And I would put on a different hat every time, which I thought was a little bit humorous. But they didn't seem to give two shakes about it i never heard one word about my hat escapades while i was going down there it was a trip you know uh started getting comfortable with that ankle bracelet uh you know i made so many goofy mistakes there was one of the times and here's one of the things where i, I never knew the rules you know and I thought that if I just screwed up one time, man, I, that they would be taking me right straight to prison. I, I just, that was what my my head had told me. And uh, I was, uh, I went down one time and, and you know, there was a uh, gal working at, and again, my normal people were not available. And I was uh, checking in with somebody I had not checked in with before. Uh, no big deal, really. But she uh asked me she looked at my schedule and she looked at this and she said how come you're only going to your parents for one hour on sunday i said well that's what they told me i could do and she goes oh no she said uh how long have you been and she looked it up she goes you've been uh you've been on uh the program for 90 days now and she said you can do it for uh, two hours now and i just kind of laughed and i was like well you know what's actually and this has been the way that this really has been happening is that I didn't know what I could do and what I couldn't do until I did it or didn't do it, and then they would correct me. So uh, I didn't have the rules. And so she slid, she opens this drawer up and slides it open, and she goes, they didn't give you one of these? And across the front of this notebook, this set of papers was, it said HIP Participant Guidelines. And I just smiled and laughed at her, and I was like, nope, they did not give me one of those. And she kind of looked at me, and she just, her eyes got big, and she goes, oh, 
And she just held eye contact with me. She didn't even look down the drawer. She held the eye contact with me. She slid the paper back in the drawer and shut it. And she said, okay, well, we will talk to, uh, I will talk to somebody about that. And I thought, uh, the look she gave me was, what in the world is going on with this dude that they didn't even give him the rule book? But, so I'm 90 days down the road and I'm gotten pretty, uh, I've had gotten a fair decent little foundation under my feet. And I, um, wasn't you know in in dire straits anymore and they gave me the rule book and the rule book let me know that i could have actually failed some of those uh breathalyzer tests uh, like three of them before getting in trouble and some other kind of informations like that that uh that had i known earlier uh may not have been good for me so uh, i always do check chalk those things up to that higher power doing for me what i could not do for myself uh he got used to wearing it, you know, I'd be in the office, and work never did know that I, you know, I never did have to tell them, uh, I don't work there anymore, uh, it's kind of something I can kind of be a little bit more free to talk about today, and I don't, I wouldn't have, I think I'd be free to talk about that anyway, but uh, they never did, I never had to tell them, you know, and, and I traveled a lot for work, and never did end up, uh, you know, one of my worst uh, fears was, is that I'd have to end up, get, I'd get asked to travel, and I had an ankle bracelet on, and I wouldn't be able to, and I'd have to tell them, and I just, like, pick, had this mental picture of them asking me why I couldn't travel, and me picking up my pants leg and showing them my ankle bracelet. They, uh, I never had to do that. I never got asked to travel that entire time while I was on home incarceration, um, but I do remember a time or two where I'd be sitting in these horseshoe-shaped, you know, these uh, conference rooms with these horseshoe-shaped tables in them so everybody could kind of look at each other. And uh, and somebody, like, glancing down, like, at my ankle, like, and with scrunching up their eyebrows, like, what the hell is on that dude's ankle? And, uh, and that happened a couple of times. And there was actually one time where I, my sponsor would call me at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon most days when he got off work. And... Uh, and I, it would always be, it's kind of like a saved by the bell thing. I'd be in the middle of a conversation. I didn't really want to be in with people at work. And I could say, oh, got to take this call. And one day I was standing there for whatever reason, because I just joke and cut up stuff. I said, oh, that's my probation officer. I got to uh, take this call. And I walked off. And a little while later, the guy come up. And one of the guys that was standing there talking, he come up to me. And he goes, yeah, you was acting like you was joking, but you were serious, wasn't you? And he pointed at my ankle. And he said, I've seen it before. And, uh. So a few people at work caught on to it, but uh, it never it never did cause any issue. Uh, I guess I'll further down that trail a little bit is that uh, not having to uh, travel for that time. And then, you know, I got off. They told me a couple of weeks before that nine months was up that I was probably going to get off and go on day reporting where I would need to call Janine every day. And they were going to take the ankle bracelet off of me and I was going to actually get a break because of my good behavior. And they could also see that I'd, you know, in, in the first five months or something, I'd worked the steps and I'd gotten free uh, entirely. My spirit had gotten free. Uh, they saw that, and that was one of the things about Janine, and she could tell that that was happening with me. And I'll tell some of this story from my perspective, and I don't think she would mind at all. Uh, she means a great deal to me. And um, so as I pop, go down this path... Uh, I'll probably talk about some of that. Um, so I ended up on a day reporting, and that's like when I was down there at deer camp for that two weeks right after getting off of it, I would have to come up top of the hill and I had to call her every day, which wasn't any big deal because I was going to 12-step meetings in the evenings, and I could uh, I could contact her either by text or, or voicemail, 
And as long as I made the contact with her and, and could be contacted, it was it was not a big deal. And uh, that was actually cool because I had a list of meetings and stuff, and I would get up and get out of there. And um, the very first night, I went to a meeting that was in a book because it was in a different district. And I went, and it was dark, and I couldn't find it. And I was, like, bombed because I couldn't find a meeting. And I've been used to going to meetings every week or every night. And, uh, but I missed it and I couldn't find it. So I went on back at cabin and I tried again the next night. Well, the next night I found the meeting, I meeting, you know, in another location. And these things are like sometimes 20 miles apart from one another, but it's the same guys at the same meetings, 20 miles apart from each other out there in the country. It's not like here in town. And, uh, once I found a meeting, you know, I could ask and get the skinny on everything, you know? And so then I got the idea and those guys told me where all the, uh, active meetings we're at and i still have those and before deer season usually i'll contact somebody to make sure that the meetings are where they're at so that i don't end up missing them again because every year i do that and the guys remember me and that's kind of cool because i got this little group of people down there that uh country folks out in rural indiana where around deer season every year uh i go visit them in some meetings so back to the travel thing so then I was on another year of probation and although the travel restrictions were not so uh, strict as they were when I was on the home incarceration I was still afraid to travel and I knew there'd be some hoops to jump through and at one point I ended up getting asked to um, to be it what well, and let me think about the timeline so then that was almost all 215 2015 and I was in uh, on home incarceration it was 2016 so towards the end of like a September August September of 2016 uh, work notified me that I've been placed, have been selected to be on this team, this research and development team to, to work on some new technology. And in that it was with an, it was in, it was in cahoots with a company in Japan and we were going to need to travel over and get trained. And that was going to happen in September. And so I went down and talked to my probation officer about that, you know, and she said, yeah, you know, if you're going to, I still remember she was, you know, if you were going to like Alabama or Connecticut or someplace like that, you know, I would imagine that's going to be feasible. But she said, I don't think the judge is going to let you leave the country. But if that's a deal, we will contact the judge and we'll fill out the paperwork and we'll see if we can get that done. But she said, uh, I don't, I'm not, she wasn't very optimistic about that happening. So the September trip, you know, of course I'm, I'm anxious about it. Uh, my sponsor is always telling me for, you know, pray to my higher power, support my recovery, whatever that means. And I continue to do that today. So I sit and I, uh, watch it tick out, you know, and, and the meeting, the, the, the trip moved out to October and then October come around and we're not going to do it. I'm, uh, I've moved away from my people. So I've been moved into a special little group that's working on this team where we're all potted up together and, uh, the meet the the meeting i keep on saying that the uh trip to japan moved from you know from september nope october nope november nope and and it just kept on getting bumped out and out and then of course when it got to be around the holidays nobody wanted to travel then so then they moved it out to january and uh then it didn't happen in january so i kept on doing all these uh, uh most, a lot of times i just kept my mouth shut because it started moving and moving and until it actually became something real i wasn't going to bother my probation officer with it but uh I got pushed out and pushed out. So on um, February the 18th of 2017, um, they took off my ankle brace or took off my ankle brace. I signed the paper and finished the uh, probation, not the ankle bracelet, the probation. So I finalized that, signed off, was released, 
uh, from probation. And 11 days later, on February the 29th, I was on an airplane to Japan. Uh, so we got there, man, and I'm standing up on a mountain. We very, The very first Friday night, man, we, there's a gondola car took you up on top of this mountain. I can't remember what the name of it is now, but uh, Nagasaki, Japan has one of the top three, I think, nightscapes in the country, ranked by somebody. And I think Monaco and Hong Kong are the other two or something like that. Uh, so I'm standing up on this mountain with this gondola car took up while I'm watching the, as the sun sets behind me over the Japanese ocean. And I'm looking down at the port of Nagasaki as the lights are like changing from dark to the lights down there. Almost look like the sky, almost like twinkling stars down there. Thinking, my goodness, man, here I am on the other side of the world watching uh, the Japanese uh, watching the sunset over the Japanese ocean, looking down on Nagasaki, Japan, when just uh, a couple of weeks ago I needed to have a judge's approval to leave the county. Uh, that's big stuff for this dude. I cried on that top of that hill, and uh, and I had a great time in Japan, and it was uh, somewhat of a spiritual mecca. You know, one day we uh, one day we uh, took off. It was a Saturday morning after this thing, and uh, after the Friday night that we were up up on top of the mountain watching that uh, watching the sunset and everything. The next day, I woke up early, and I had a pot planned, and I headed on the trolley cars. They had the old trolley cars with the overhead wires. I went to the very furthest southern tip of Nagasaki and started down there because there was a Confucian temple down there. And I went down there and uh, sat and meditated in that Confucian temple and uh, made a little offering at the altar and slowly made my way through the, do the day, the entire day from um, from southern end of Nagasaki all the way up through. And I stopped at gardens and stopped. And then for a while, another fellow from work was with me. Uh, he just was like kind of tagging along and I said sure I wasn't really cool with that in the beginning I kind of want to do this by myself but he uh, did also didn't want to tell him no so we got to know each other pretty well during that trip and that day but he bailed on the middle of the day which was fine I don't mean bail in a negative time term but when we were coming up north from the southern end when we come back by the trolley stop that was nearest to the hotel he went on ahead and went back and went back to the hotel and I kept on going visiting temples and gardens and other points of interest and uh, up in northern end of nagasaki was the ground zero where the bombs were dropped and when we got up there uh man there was a heaviness up around that there area uh one of the things was is as i looked around you know there was a lot of japanese people and here's this tall white american obvious american that is um standing there uh watching this stuff and then there's a big uh there's a corner of a church that's still standing just the very corner and there's the nagasaki museum it had some just brutal pictures of the damage and the people that that experienced that uh just terribly heavy man and i spent the afternoon up there i was journaling i have a journal out on the net from the whole experience and pictures too from that trip to uh the whole the whole week we were there I don't know, we were there two or three weeks I can't remember um, but the highlight of the day was is I knew that I had found that there was an AA meeting up that end of the town at the end of the day so uh, as it started getting to be evening being time to do that I started strolling that direction stopped and bought some street food and an ice cream cone I, I remember that and I uh, started uh, heading up that way and and I, I found a church and wasn't sure if I was in the right place for sure, you know, but it looked like any old Western church. It looked like any old church you'd see here in New Albany or any place else. And um, 
I kind of looked around for a minute and I saw a guy kind of, you know, uh, one foot up on a stool, kind of elbow on his knee, smoking a cigarette. And, uh, and he looked like my kind of guy. And right beyond him was a door that had the circle and the triangle hanging on, uh, on the door. And it said AA inside of that. Uh, so I walked up to him slowly and uh, said AA. And he uh, got big eyes and looked at me and like stubbed out a cigarette real quick and uh, you know waved me to come his direction and we went and he he opened the door and um, showed me you know had a motion for me to take off my shoes and to put on some sandals that were down there there was like some you know my big size 12 foot and I think the sandals were like a size six or something and uh so he allowed me to go first right and he he shuffled me ahead you know and kind of you know very uh um i don't know if the word is subservient submissive something like that but very very uh darn the word is slipping me but i think you get the point so he shows me into the room and as i walk into the room everybody's eyes get real big because they're looking at me like a wrong room dude uh i'm smiling and the guy comes in behind me and he's rattling off machine gun fire japanese blah, 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 blah. and i seen him and i bet he's going oh it's okay it's okay he's one of us he's one of us and as the smile started coming around the room and uh, people uh, shook my hand and, and we did our best at some introductions. There was one guy there that spoke a bit of English. His name was Sly. Uh, he had the juice. He also had some kind of cough. I think he must have had lung cancer or something going on because he was coughing and spitting into a cup. Uh, he was not in good shape, but you could see the twinkle in his eyes. Spiritually, he was in good shape. His physical body was not. Uh, we sat around in that meeting and... Uh, those guys uh, started reading, just like we do at any meeting. And um, I started realizing the cadence, and I was relatively sure they were reading How It Works. And I'm kind of following along in my big book of How It Works. And, uh, you know, I'm just trying to be respectful and following along and doing, you know, having my own meeting and, and amongst their meeting. And they got to the point where it says, uh, our adventures before and after made clear three pertinent ideas and the guy said a and uh, my finger was right there my eyes were right there in my book and chills went up my spine as he said a uh that no human power could release our alcoholism b uh and, and damn I, i've lost it but see and god could and would if he were sought and everybody chanted that part together and uh i was like wow how cool is that man i've fallen right along so they'd go around the room and they'd just start sharing from one around the room. And, you know, I can't understand a single word they're saying. Uh, it goes around the room and this person shares, that person shares. But I kind of get the gist of it. You know, you could feel the flavor. Uh, somebody was a newcomer and you could tell that she is having some issues and she had a paper to be signed. So you could see that, which was interesting, is that they're having, you know, get court paper signed in Japan to go to an AA meeting. And as it come around to me... Uh, the guy to my left looked at me and he said speech which i think he just meant you know your turn to share so i shared and i told him what i was going on and they all looked at me and they were intently uh engaged while while i spoke and uh i would guess they probably knew a little english you know obviously i knew no japanese and they couldn't speak any english except for slide maybe a couple other people had a little bit of english and uh 
And we went around the room and, and we finished that meeting and closed it, you know, and, and, and I couldn't understand a word they said and they couldn't understand a word I said and it didn't make a fucking bit of difference, man. And I tear up thinking about it right now. Because there I was in that faraway land and once again, man, just a few weeks before I had to get permission from a judge to leave the county. There I was on the other side of the world sitting in an AA meeting and I offered a guy that slide my uh, big book but he wouldn't take it because he didn't have something of equal value to trade. But he did have a, like a meeting in a pocket kind of book and it's like half eight, half of eight and half of by 11 book and it has uh, the 12 traditions, uh, how it works, the 12 steps, the, some other things, some promises, uh, some other you know meeting staples in it. And he signed it and put his telephone number in there and uh I had a little uh, AA meeting in a pocketbook too kind of thing and uh, I signed mine and put my telephone number in mine and we traded that because that was an equal trade, right? And I still have that and got done, man, I was so juiced up after that meeting. Uh, I jumped on that trolley car, man, and uh, headed back south and the sun was setting. It was uh, evening and headed back down to the hotel and as I'm cruising past that stop where the mountain was, uh, the guy that had been with me earlier in the day uh, jumped on the trolley car, man, and he walk, walked right up to me and sat beside me and had no idea it was me. I had to say his name. Uh, it was interesting that he didn't, like, pick up on that that was me sitting there. Anyway, it just totally juiced me up, and that whole day was just uh, it was just a magical day. I, I, don't, I tried to get up on Sunday and repeat it because it was like one of those things that, you know, I want this day over and over and over again, like a Groundhog Day thing. Uh, but... That was not to be. The next day it was cold and rainy. The first day it was 70 degrees and and sunny. It was just, just awesome. But the next day it wasn't, and, and I couldn't recreate it again. And, you know, time ticked out, and and, uh, and we come back home from Japan. And, you know, ultimately that ended up being something that uh, ended up, you know, that being moved to that other team. Meanwhile, while I moved to that other team, uh, the company had changed software, so uh, CAD software, and that's why I was basically a draftsman all in all. And uh, ended up being that while I went over on the special teams, all my guys got trained on the new stuff, or all my you know my cohorts or whatever got trained on the new stuff. And when I came back, I never could really catch up, and and I didn't have any desire to either. Um, after that, I'd, I'd going over and working in that uh, other department and doing that, it like swept all my drive from me from continuing to want to work there. It became a real chore to get up in the mornings and be there. But that's a whole other story. I don't want to go down that pike. You know, every week uh, with Janine, I'd, I'd go see my attorney, my verifications and all that kind of stuff. And then I'd go over and uh, sit with her for a little bit. She's more like a social worker kind of type. Uh, where she was checking on my well-being and seeing how, you know, if I was doing okay. And and we hit it off really quickly. And she's just a really easy lady to be with and talk to. And she showed genuine interest in me getting better. And, and uh, you know, frankly, I'm a pretty personal person, too. And so we, we talked and, and got to know each other. And, and every week on my weekend visit, we would sit there and talk to them. And we'd have our conversation. And it was fun. Uh, and she was interested in my recovery. She was truly interested in it. And she was watching me. <laughs> She was watching me change, and she saw that. And on one particular visit, man, I was sitting there, man, the energy was head shifted completely. There was something else going on, man, and I could see that she was really, really down. And, and I asked her, you know, I was like, what's going on with you? And uh, and she broke down, man, and, and threw some sobs and some, some you know, uh, some real 
some real um, some real pain. She told me that her husband had been diagnosed with uh, advanced colon cancer. And uh, from that day forward, man, our visits became... <laughs> from that day forward, our visits became something where we shared each other's lives with one another. And we became friends. And she would talk about her things and I would talk about mine. And, uh, you know, that moved me. And it still does. She's a friend of mine today. She actually uh, found out I was telling her about going to a meditation workshop. It was on Saturdays all one month, you know, four Saturdays in a row. And she asked if she could go. And she attended that meditation workshop with me. Uh, she's attended my sobriety celebrations, my, my birthdays. Uh, she stayed in contact with each other, you know, at some level ever since. You know, Facebook friends, whatnot. So some four years after meeting her, uh, she reached out to me and told me that her uh, husband had passed away from that cancer. Made it four years. And man, you know, somebody used to be, used to basically be my uh, corrections officer, took time out of her day to call me and one of uh, life's most difficult times to let me know that uh, that that had happened. Don't tell me what can and can't happen in recovery. Don't begin to say it can't happen for you. My miracle list is deep, man. Reminds me, uh, we're supposed to have lunch. I need to arrange that. Well, about an hour of uh, podcast here. Uh, that story kind of took some of the uh, wind out of my sails, and not not in a bad way. It just touched me and. Uh, Wondered about, uh, made me think, uh, you know, I have a, I have an accountability issue I need to clean up because I talked about, uh, doing something with her sometime and doing lunch and, and, and I let that get by and, and didn't do it. That's okay. We can make things right today. So a week away from my 50th birthday. Doing this handyman gig, digging that. Getting ready to go on a really neat vacation. Some other things are changing, some things are shifting. Uh, looking forward to hunting season's just around the corner. Here we are. Uh, what is it? The August, the seventeenth uh, today. So just a couple of days ago, squirrel season started. I was sharing about that the other day. Uh, the uh, I remember coming home from school and Dad have shotgun in a car and we'd take off and go down. Actually, down a lot of times we go to where Far, you know, what is now Fargo, and uh, go squirrel hunting on uh, August the fifteenth after school. It's something I always uh, love to do, man. Is a buggy, spider webs, uh, 
but it didn't matter to me, man. I always loved doing that, and uh, and uh, kind of missed it today too. And this weekend, thought about uh, going and uh, looking for a squirrel this afternoon or this morning when I was walking around. I heard some moving around in the trees, but don't really have any desire to kill them or clean them anymore. But that's still in me and what squirrel season means is deer season is just around the corner so it's time to start getting started on that tractors running again so i'm gonna try to see if i can't get food plots back out there we got a lot of firewood drug up we are completely out of firewood so we're going to have firewood cutting party and get that done not having a fall retreat again this year um maybe i'll resurrect that sometime probably will have a uh, recovery deer hunt sometime over the fall that was cool last year. That was one of the podcasts was from Deer Camp. That needs to be a uh, another. Uh, I think that needs to be a uh, annual event. Enjoy the shit out of that. It'll get around. Everybody want to come, but it's hard to hunt everybody. You know, we got a lot of acres and stuff, but it's hard to hunt everybody. Of course, some people could. You know, there's room for some people just to hang out and not go hunting. Uh, as a guide kind of guy, of course, the guys that were there last year, you know, they start knowing where they're going and they'd be able to be a little self, more self-sufficient. Uh, last year I had, uh, you know, not had to, I was, I get to, uh, help them find spots to hunt and that kind of thing. Uh, be cool to do it earlier in the season though. Maybe I can do that too. We did it muzzleloader season last year. Uh, there's some reasons around that I won't go into here, but, uh, it'd be nice if we did it a little earlier in the season couple of us bow hunt i just primarily bow hunt so and of course i don't i bow hunt hunt i don't do anything more uh, i haven't killed anything since 2000 i haven't killed a deer since 2000 killed a turkey in 12 with my longbow uh man something else was talk, something slipped my mind on the whole uh, home incarceration thing that i was going to touch on and it it got away from me Yeah, I don't remember. It's out of context now. It don't matter. So, um, I'm oh, I want to talk about for just a minute. Uh, nicotine recovery. It's something else I've been putting in on the Spiritual Underground podcast, and it's something that's a big been a big piece of my recovery. And I know that uh, you know, I look around, I got a lot of nicotine using friends in my in my inner circle actually. Uh, I think they know that it's not a knock or it's not any kind of dig on them. I hope it also gets under their craw a little bit about wanting to quit. One of them in particular, uh, I'll just say it. I'll put him on the hook. Marshall, who's coming tomorrow, has already talked to me about nicotine being the next thing he wants to tackle. And uh, we have a nicotine quitting community and uh, a little part of a little group that's doing that. So people want to do that. Uh, you know, it's a little odd. It's a little funny. But, you know, uh, so is coming in and investing yourself in the 12 steps. It's, you know, it feels completely unnatural at first, right? And same thing when I invested myself in a, in a uh, nicotine quitting community. It felt very unnatural at first, but uh, it, it come around and, and now it's a, uh, and we might have run one guy off. We had a guy come in, he wanted to quit nicotine and he come around, he hung around for a few days. And I remember one day he asked us how old we were. <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment, man, because I'm almost 50, and if I'm getting looked at as uh, as uh, younger than I then 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 that's okay with me. Uh, that could be looked at as a uh, maybe I'm a bit adolescent, and again, okay. So what? Uh, but the nicotine quitting thing, man, it's another drug, you know, and I didn't realize how much it actually uh, 
had its claws in me uh, at the level that it did. You know, it's the other thing. You know, you get used to it, and nicotine's one that you know your body begins begins to just be used to. So you can't, you know, you have no idea. You think it's really not doing anything to you, but come off of that shit, man. When you come off of it, it will wig you. I mean, it, the the and you know what? My ass was on fire when I quit the dope and the alcohol. So. There's a little bit of some stuff going on. You know, there really was no real crisis going on with my when I quit nicotine. Sometimes some people have some, you know, some health issues or something that will cause them to need to do that. So they'll have that um, that uh, desperation that some of the that dr- drugs and alcohol usually give us. But uh, man, you stop it, and uh, you'll definitely know what it does to you. Uh, you know, you, you think it doesn't. You know, you think it doesn't have its hooks in you. Uh, the rage that I had was phenomenal uh, i've been thinking about resurrecting some of my and i might see if i can do that like migrate some of those nicotine quitting videos over to the spiritual underground podcast they're out on youtube right now under a channel called dog on hunt just like it sounds dog on hunt and uh heck there's a hundred something on there uh, of just short youtube videos about uh, on nicotine quitting some of them have actual content some of them are heck or some of them is a cabin tour uh, some of them are comedy. Most of them have some uh, humorous element. I tried to interject that most of the time. So anyway, uh, check that out, man. And I'm going to continue to do this nicotine quitting thing. And I'm going to continue to release these things. These Jim is doing these PQAs. So they're public quit announcements. And they're giving you information about quitting nicotine. And, uh, you know, man, we just continue to do things. Improve the quote, you know, quote Bob Earl. Continue to do things that improve the quality of my life in recovery. Um, and that, and that means in recovery from whatever, man, I'm in recovery from nicotine addiction also. Uh, the other day I was driving home, driving and had, had a particularly, uh, stressful event and, and I wanted a cigarette and I haven't smoked. I stopped smoking cigarettes in 2003. I had a little stint in rehab in 13 or something like that. I can't really remember when that was. And I picked up some cigarettes. Uh, and started smoking again for just like a month or so, and then I started vaping. After after that, I was like, "Man, I'm not digging these cigarettes." And I stopped that and started uh, vaping. And I can't remember. I think it's 14, maybe. But anyway, here, you know, some uh, five years later, I'm driving down the road and craving a cigarette out of the blue. Um, like I was sitting with Brandon last night and that fist up, and he's dipping, and and he's not dipping the brand I like. He's dipping, man, and, and it's, I'm looking over it, and a couple times, you know, thinking, hmm, because I kind of miss dipping, man, when you're sitting around and not really doing anything else. It just seems like something to do. Uh, what I find myself doing today instead is eating. Ah, so, nicotine quitting, PQAs. Good to continue to do some nicotine quitting podcasts. I got some other guests lined up. It's one of the cool things about this particular format. I look on some of my friends' podcasts and are looking for guests all the time. And I have right now, it appears that I have an infinite number of guests to uh, interview and have on the show. And next Sunday, we got a big time uh, guest coming into DTM Studios to 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 share his story. And I'm terror. I'm too too excited about that. So we got Mark Marshall. And uh, I'll just keep listening to myself for the time being. But uh, and we got this one coming in next after I get home from vacation next Sunday. And uh, you're going to like that. Um, so I'm having a blast quitting with you. If you're not having fun in your recovery, it's your own damn fault. Thank each and every one of you. 
for allowing me to participate in my recovery in this manner and many other unique ways that I get to do this thing and quit and uh, quit, stay sober. What was they? Quit, clean, and sober. Um, what we'll do this too tomorrow? Actually, is this is I will be sober seventeen hundred days tomorrow, I believe. Yeah, today is sixteen hundred ninety-nine days sober. Six hundred sixty-nine days off of the uh, nicotine. And today is the 77th day of the 100 handstands of summer that are doing a little promotional thing with 502 Power Yoga. So my little little thing I send out every day, like today says 1699 slash 669 slash 77. Something's gotten goofed up there, though. Something ain't right. Yeah, look, I did. I bumped it. It is not 1700 a day. Today is 1690. I just fat thumbed it. <laughs> no big deal. Don't have to be perfect today. I can correct that easy enough. Uh, thank y'all. Keep on listening. Feedback. Spiritualunderground.org. 12-step spiritual recovery at Amazon by James Christopher Cohn. Music around this is by Darren Frank. Uh... Let's continue to improve the quality of our lives, folks. Be a better version of us today than we were yesterday. Peace out. Greetings, folks. This is The Colonel. You may remember me from episode 126 about nicotine recovery. Well, I'm here with this week's public quit announcement for those of you wishing to add nicotine to your recovery roster. This PQA is brought to you by DTM Woodworking and Handy Dan Services. Today I want to talk about something extremely important for everyone just starting out and to those of you with, with some quit time already under your belts. It's called a quit plan, i.e. what are you going to do when the cravings are just too much or you're caught off guard when a friend lights a cigarette next to you or cracks open a fresh can of Copenhagen just upwind of you. That shit sucks. So, how you react to it is what we call a quit plan. This battle drill should include having and using the numbers to your quit brothers that can talk you off the ledge, or having a pocket full of your hard candy of choice. My plan was always to have Dan along with a dozen other members on speed dial, and to never ever leave my house without a pocket full of cherry flavored Hall's cough drops. It's also generally recommended that you avoid bars or alcohol consumption early on for those of you not already walking that recovery path. Other steps may include avoiding convenience stores or gas stations, and even politely staying away from certain folks early in your quit who tend to trigger those really bad cravings. Everyone's plan is different in subtle ways because of the nature of their own addictions. So sit down and take inventory of your addictive behaviors, your triggers, and your past performance and recovery. Then develop a plan specific to your own needs. Modify them as you learn what works best for you and about your own addiction. Well, my friends, this has been your PQA for the week. Take it from Dan and I. It all gets better. And you only need to worry about staying quick today, one day at a time. Quit on and carry on, my friends. Colonel No Cup out.
all alone at night staring out my window Watching the rain fall, listen to the wind blow I'd like to tell you exactly what I've been through But it's so painful it's hard to get into Every day it seems like it's something else I don't know why I try to fool myself Keep believing there's something I can do Maybe someday I will break through Maybe someday I will break through At the stoplight, screaming at the masses Pedal to the floor, hurry up and pass them It's not the people that make me want to scream It's your memory tugging at my heartstrings Every day it seems like it's something else I don't know why I try to fool myself Keep believing there's something I can do Maybe someday I will break through Maybe someday I will break through Such a cold word I like to turn the heat up But I'm a frightened child afraid of getting beat up so I hide away locked up in my safe zone But I still feel the chill and it cuts me to the bone Every day it seems like it's something else I don't know why I try to fool myself Keep believing there's something I can do Maybe someday I will break through Maybe some